Welcome to the Pharmacy Quality Solutions Quality Corner Show, where we talk quality of healthcare and explore what that actually means. Let's dig into performance measurements, the equipped platform, pharmacy goals, and personal goals. We will also occasionally cover topical healthcare news and maybe throw into the conversation a few of our own nerdy passions and hobbies. So turn us up. The Quality Corner Show starts now. Hello, Quality Corner Show listeners. This is your guest host, Zach Renfro, filling in for Nick Dorich, and we welcome you to the next episode of the Quality Corner Show. Let's call this a special episode of the Quality Corner Show, one that's timely and important to the quality of life in the midst of the coronavirus. And as of the afternoon of March 10th, the virus has spread to at least 36 states in the U.S. and Washington, D.C., with at least 802 confirmed cases. As pharmacists, we understand the importance of evidence-based medicine, and therefore, we thought it was important uh, as an opportunity to review the known information and recommendations provided by reputable public health sources. So while I could sit here and read recommendations from the CDC or the World Health Organization or pharmacist.com or any of those different groups, it seemed like a better idea to speak with someone that has already been communicating with pharmacists, public health officials, and the public regarding the coronavirus. With that in mind, I reached out to some friends in the state of Washington, which has been more familiar than most in the United States uh, with the virus. And so today, let me introduce Jenny Arnold. Jenny is the Director of Practice Development at the Washington State Pharmacy Association. Jenny, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a crazy time, but I'm always happy to chat with a friend and share some information. That's great. So, Jenny, I'm really looking forward to this conversation today. But before we get into our important details, can you give me an overview of your experience and your current work at the Washington State Pharmacy Association? Yeah, as the Director of Practice Development, I tell my mom that I find new and creative ways for pharmacists to take over the world. Uh, We are lucky enough to have two pharmacists on staff at the association here, and a large portion of my job ends up getting to be devoted to developing projects, CE, a little bit of grant work. Uh, We do quite a bit of emergency preparedness work in our state and uh, work on vaccines, immunizations, and the like. It was actually 11 years ago this month that I started with the Washington State Pharmacy Association. And within a month of me starting, we had the H1N1 outbreak. So I've had a history of uh, working our way through outbreaks, whether it's measles and mumps in Washington, H1N1, and now coronavirus. Yeah, your experience is definitely gonna be uh, well put to use during this uh, outbreak with the coronavirus. So thanks again for all you do uh, for the State Pharmacy Associations um, as a person who is very involved with the State Pharmacy Association, I really appreciate that work that you do. And so um, I I really appreciate you joining this conversation and really to help provide effective messaging with the coronavirus. So with that, let's run down some things we know from the CDC about the coronavirus, also known as COVID-19. It can be spread person to person by close contact within six feet and through respiratory droplets like coughing and sneezing. A person who might have the virus and not yet be showing symptoms can still potentially spread the virus. And some common symptoms are a fever equal to or greater than 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit, cough, sore throat in some, 
uh, difficulty breathing that can be severe enough to seek treatment. Based on those quick details, what is significant or different about the coronavirus compared to seasonal flu, and what is making the coronavirus so unique right now? Yeah, well, I mean, I just start out by saying that we're, I'm trying to provide the most accurate information possible, but the information is constantly changing and evolving. It's difficult to find peer-reviewed information quite yet. Uh, it's being popped up at rapid pace. Uh, so probably the moment you and I hit stop on this recording, we'll find new information uh, that, that probably conflicts with what we are saying. Uh, but having said that, I think it's important to share what we do know versus saying nothing at all. So COVID-19 is caused by the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus right now. Uh, from my microbiology days, I remember that coronavirus was so named because it resembles the solar corona around the surface of the sun. And um, it's from the glycoprotein projections. It makes for a very pretty uh, picture as we've started to see in the media. Uh, traditionally, we have coronaviruses that are circulating. They cause just the common cold uh, that's out there. This virus, though, is novel. It's new. We haven't seen it. We don't have antibodies to it in any of us, and there's no vaccine for it. So that's quite a bit different than what we see with flu right now, where we have effective treatments and we have a vaccine for it, as well as a history of antibodies. And so we don't see that with COVID. With general transmission of coronavirus seems to be at about 0.5%. So a half of a percent, if one person goes out infected with coronavirus and it exposes 200 people, in general, one will get infected. So not anywhere near the rates that you see with measles, for instance, and what we, we worry about with that. Um, however, the, the R0 or the R0 that you see is the reproductive rate. So how many people uh, will one person infect? That right now seems to be between two and three, which is about double the rate of influenza. So while this isn't a, a hugely infectious disease compared to measles, per, per, for instance, uh, with regards to influenza, it does seem to be more infectious. Of course, that sometimes those data is limited by our ability to diagnose and we've had uh, lower rates of diagnostic kits available. It's very difficult to get tested so far. So I'm sure that will shift with time and our understanding. Something else that I think is a little bit different is that you see about 15% of people seeking uh, urgent care or emergency room care for COVID. And that is down from about 0.1%, oh, and then about 5% of patients may require critical care admission. With flu, over the last five years, the highest rate of hospitalization is 0.1%. So quite a bit higher rates, um, you know, at least 10, if not uh, much higher fold rate of hospitalization with uh, COVID versus influenza. And so that definitely seems to impact it. Where most patients, 80% of patients, are going to have very mild illness, not need to seek treatment, um, probably similar, or you know, similar to what we think of with the flu, where you need to be home, drink your fluids, take good care of yourself. Um, that percentage that need critical care admission, that percentage that are seeking hospitalization, does seem significantly higher. Uh, the risk of 
case fatality is overall, this is a number I've seen everything from about 1.6% to maybe even as high as 3.5% across the general population. But when you look at patients over the age of 80, the, the case fatality rate goes up to about 36%, which is again, higher than you see for influenza. So, um, you know, for young, healthy individuals, there may not be as big of a difference. But for our elderly patients, clearly those with chronic illnesses, this seems to be an even more significant illness with very little to nothing known about how to treat it other than supportive care. Um, it also seems to impact people's kidneys, and we know that especially um, makes our older population vulnerable. Uh, ECMO has been used even in China to treat patients. And so it's, it's just a very different illness in some regards, uh, multi-system failure potential and uh, more significant illness in those who are elderly. So that's why we're caring about it. It's had this large transmission rate, even with uh, social isolating, social distancing, quarantine orders in China, things like that. It's hard to say what the transmission rate would look like if we didn't have some of those in place. So that's a little bit of, of some of the stats and background what we're digging up between uh, COVID and, and influenza. Yeah, that's that's an, a lot of information, but it is completely necessary because I know personally, I, I've been on social media, and I see a lot of folks saying, oh, it's the same as the flu. And at first, to be honest with you, I thought the same thing. But once I started reading into it, I know that there's a lot more to it than just just saying it's the flu. It's definitely not. So I'm, I appreciate you going into that level of detail because I feel like it's important. So, so with that, what are going to be the best steps that the public can take to limit potential exposure and that also maximize prevention for this virus? Well, I think that just what we've been hearing a lot in the news goes a long way with washing your hands, keep your hands away from your face, covering your cough, and more than anything, staying home when we're sick. We are in a culture of work harder, work more, show up to work, uh, including pharmacists. You know, who else is gonna open the pharmacy uh, if you call in sick? That's definitely uh, been a part of pharmacy practice for better or for worse. And now more than anything, staying home when you're sick, washing your hands more frequently, uh, and trying to make sure to, to just do good infection control in those ways is really important. What we're seeing in Washington State now is uh, multiple businesses uh, declaring work from home and closing their, their doors, basically telling employees to not come in, and even the University of Washington and many other large uh, institutions have decided that all of the instruction will be done virtually and home study. So I gave my immunization lecture today to the first year University of Washington students uh, via webinar. And uh, it went okay. Uh, you know, it wasn't the end of the world to not have class. Luckily, it's not until later that we have to practice immunizing on each other. That's a little bit harder to do over the phone lines. But uh, the, the roads here are quiet. Downtown is, is very quiet. And that social distancing also seems to be helping to prevent the, the spread of the illness as well. Yeah, that's that's great to know. I, I know in uh, in Nashville, Vanderbilt University just did the same thing, where they're having all of their classes be uh, uh, virtual classes if they're going to have them at all. So, really interesting stuff with that. <clears throat> so we know when it comes to pharmacists. I mean, you're a pharmacist. I'm a pharmacist. We we, we know that there's uh, our pharmacy 
colleagues are on the front lines of healthcare each and every day. Uh, pharmacists are getting plenty of questions about the coronavirus, and based on my experience of walking into a local pharmacy just yesterday, the shelves are pretty barren for cough and cold medicines, uh, different uh, bleach wipes uh, or uh, Lysol wipes or whatever it is, uh, as well as face masks. As a pharmacist in, in the community, what should we be actively communicating to our patients? Well, I think to, to the patients, the similar sort of messaging that we had before on um, being making sure to be prepared to social isolate for two weeks if you do get sick, to not come into the pharmacy if you're sick. We've had numerous exposures in pharmacies where patients are diagnosed with COVID or were on home isolation uh, from COVID. And then when they started to show symptoms, they came to the pharmacy looking for cough and cold treatment. Uh, medication. So if you're sick, stay home, send a friend, go through the drive-through. Uh, some pharmacies have delivery services. Utilize those. And we've been encouraging pharmacies to get the big sign, similar to many clinics, that remind patients that, that they need to not be coming into the pharmacy if they're sick. For the pharmacist, take a step back from patients even further than you used to, probably two steps back if the person is coughing. Uh, that will go a long way to helping them. Uh, I also think that, you know, patients are freaking out about face masks, but good just hand hygiene, keeping your hands away from your face. The problem with face masks, if you can even get them, is that we then tend to touch our faces more and mess with the masks, which then gets our hands up around our faces even more and can increase the risk of illness and illness transmission, which is why masks are being underplayed uh, in terms of prevention. It would be nice if we had them available for those walking into pharmacies with cough to contain uh, the, the cough spores, but we just really, um, that's not there. And uh, I think that it's also important for pharmacies to start thinking ahead if they're doing compounding or sterile compounding, that PPE supplies are gonna be in short supply. Our board of, our, our pharmacy commission, which is basically our board, is meeting tomorrow to discuss uh, potential uh, changes to our USP standards if uh, we can't get the PPE needed to compound medication. So there's gonna be a ripple up down effect even with medications and supply, but supporting patients with being able to self-quarantine for two weeks is important, staying out of the pharmacy if they're sick, um, coughing or covering their coughs and washing their hands. So basic hygiene, wow. <laughs> so yeah, I, that makes a lot of sense. So thanks for that. Uh, when it comes to what's going on and not just on, at a state level, but uh, on a national level, um, APHA, the American Pharmacists Association, uh, just released a guide uh, late last week to help uh, pharmacists over at pharmacist.com slash coronavirus. So I recommend checking that out, but uh, specifically concerning medication, if a patient can get provider approval for an increased supply of medication with a prescription, they can uh, obviously fill and, if necessary, coordinate with family members for pickup or have, as you mentioned, have delivery drivers drop off the necessary medication to avoid patients from having to leave their house. Um, it might, might also be something that the patients may need to work with the health insurance companies to see about getting a longer to supply, maybe like a 90-day supply for some of those folks that don't necessarily need to get into a place where there may be some folks that are um, sick that are coming in, even though we've already, as to your point earlier, wanting to keep those folks uh, isolated and at home for up to 14 days. 
So lots of different things to think about there. When it comes to um, different meetings that are going on, uh, APHA as an example is a couple of weeks out. Uh, there's another uh, meeting that uh, just got canceled, um, such as HEMS. Uh, a lot of these companies and vendors are not going to big events like HEMS or other future events. That are, and they're being canceled already, uh, either locally or na nationally. So what are your thoughts on the closure or the cancellation of different uh, meetings or conferences at this point? Well, I can say that, you know, for instance, the closure of, of offices and employees being asked to work from home. We've had one major school district that's in the heart of the outbreak uh, close its doors and do online education. It's in a, a more affluent area that can support that well. Um, what we see is quarantines and social distancing tend to flatten the epidemic curve. So instead of the peak of the outbreak, you tend to have a flatter curve. And what that flattening curve does is not overwhelm the healthcare systems as much and tends to be something that we can take as it comes a little bit better. Um, and so I think that really we aren't gonna know the real impact of all these and whether or not it makes sense until far after the outbreak is over. Uh, I think that if it's done well, it will look like it was overblown and not a big deal because we were able to stave off the worst of the pandemic because it kept a more controlled environment versus shutting things down after the, after the outbreak, after the illnesses were at an unmanageable fever pitch. So it's, it's hard to say I don't envy anybody on a planning committee having to make those calls. Um, it, it's definitely going to have uh, some big impacts on association meetings, even, even just with the travel bans and many institutions banning travel, not supporting travel grant or association related travel. We're seeing that out of our um, institutions already as well. And uh, let's just hope that it helps to get this outbreak under control um, and at least flattens the curve where we can manage it a little bit better. Uh, one thing you mentioned was the emergency fills on medication. And we already were starting to see insurance uh, carriers and PBMs allowing for emergency fills related to this so that people can have their emergency supply on hand. I think as pharmacists, us always supporting good emergency preparedness and people having extra medications, whether it's for a hurricane, uh, an earthquake up in our area in the potential, uh, or a snowstorm, you know, being able to, to survive with your medications for a, a few days to a few weeks is always important. Uh, and so hopefully this is a trend that continues and we can emphasize that with patients. I won't hold my breath, however, uh, but we also saw our Office of the Insurance Commissioner issue an emergency order uh, requiring that the carriers in our state cover an, a single emergency bill for patients. Uh, so we're starting to see emergency declarations easing some of the restrictions and lowering the barriers to good preparedness and response. That's great. That's been really um been really interesting to see. I'm glad to hear that Washington is already on the forefront of that, and chances are there'll be a lot of other states that'll take suit, um, as always. So uh, this has been a really informative discussion, and even just talking about this makes me want to go wash my hands. And I, I, I have a habit of touching my face, I'm sure, and I gotta stop, gotta be a lot, of, a lot more cognizant. So I uh, definitely appreciate uh, bringing that up and uh, covering all these topics. So. Uh, 
it, this really has been great, and I, I really appreciate you joining us to talk about the coronavirus and how pharmacists can, one, be fully informed, two, share effective messaging with the public, and really just um, hopefully make this a much better situation than it has been in, uh, so far uh, in a lot of areas. Uh, before we wrap up today's conversation, though, uh, I'd like to get a little more information from you that isn't focused on the coronavirus. Uh, coming from a state association in Tennessee, I've always known that the state of Washington has been pretty pr uh, progressive when it comes to pharmacy practice. So what is the Washington State Pharmacy Association currently working on? Um, it's a little bit different than most of the states are, especially. And what do you think about the future opportunities for the practice of pharmacy? Oh, that's a great question. And, you know, just to wrap up the wash your hands conversation, uh, one of my favorite jokes of the weekend has been uh, to the pharmacist to wash your hands like you just dispensed permethrin cream. Because we always know when those patients with scabies, <laughs> you're itch all over, you're washing your hands, you're washing the counter. So, you know, just keep that going. Uh, you know, in Washington, we've been lucky to have uh, be one of the first state or the first state to allow for collaborative drug therapy agreements and pharmacists prescribing and then uh, pharmacists billing as providers. And the confluence of those two things, something we're really seeing is more and more pharmacists are working in clinics alongside physicians with their own patient panel seeing patients and managing chronic illness. They're taking on challenges where there's other provider shortages, especially in rural areas, managing uh, endocrinology, measure, uh, mental health, dosing those medications, treating those diseases, uh, many other different aspects. So we're working on a training program to train community pharmacists and pharmacists who practice in other environments to be able to take on those roles in the clinics, which we're seeing being the fastest growing area of practice. And then likewise, uh, expanding the role or, or supporting our technicians and practicing at the top of their scope and training to support those practices as well. And then, you know, fighting the good fight alongside all the other associations in terms of reimbursement and, and uh, making sure that that recognizes the value and the importance of pharmacy practice as well. Makes sense. I mean, I know from my experience, I, I, get to have, I have the opportunity and, and the pleasure to learn about this stuff a lot more than the average everyday pharmacist, but uh, I'm glad that you're able to share some really exciting things that, that makes me energized for the, the future of the profession, especially when we get to that point of, of being part of the healthcare team on a more consistent basis in clinics and working, working side by side as opposed to being siloed into just the, the drug spend of the uh, patient, uh, of the healthcare system in general in the U.S. So, uh, thanks again for those. Go ahead. Sorry. I will just add that too that what we see when the patients or pharmacists are then a provider in the clinic, they get the same resources, but then the same expectations as physician colleagues with regard to having uh, their productivity measured, but having the documentation ability and the chart and their their metrics, quality metrics, be um, integrated into the system and and utilized. And so they're just much more at that same level as all the other providers when they're integrated in that level. And that's been really interesting to see and build upon. That's great. Yeah, I, I definitely think that that's one of the future ways of pharmacy practice in the U.S. So excited to, for that. And again, thank you for joining us today. Your presentation of this was a lot more effective than me with my country accent uh, reading off the CDC website. So greatly appreciate that. 
If you have any additional questions about the coronavirus, we implore you to check out the CDC recommendations or to contact your local health department. Uh, your local state pharmacy association, such as the state of Washington or the state of Tennessee, uh, may also have a great set of resources. Um, and at this point, I would like to remind our audience that proper education and management are always the best ways to com combat this new disease. Uh, pharmacists, practice your best prevention techniques. So step, taking a couple steps back, uh, making sure you wash your hands, uh, like you have uh, permethrin cream on there, uh, and so on. And also, please continue to share appropriate information for your patients. Uh, and so while this episode was topically relevant in nature, we look forward to getting back to our usual topics on quality measures and improvement. Uh, and with that, we've hit the week at the end of this week's episode. But we have a few final messages for you. Our team here at PQS has a couple of favors to ask of you, our podcast listener. First, we encourage you to share this podcast with two friends, because if you share this with two friends and each of them shares it with two friends, it really helps us hit a larger listening audience and make a bigger impact in the community. Second, we also want to take a moment to remind you to subscribe to the podcast wherever you may find it. And then if you have any questions or topics you'd like for us to address, please contact us. The best way to do so is to email info at pharmacyquality.com. Let us know what's on your mind and what we can address so you are fully informed. Our goal is to continuously improve our podcast content and to provide meaningful information to our listeners based on current topics in healthcare, technology, and quality measurement. We want to help you become as effective as possible in how you care for patients and improve public health outcomes. So until next time, this has been the Quality Corner Podcast. We wish you well. <laughs>